European Heart Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 36, Issue 29, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lusher. Mitral Valve Disease and Acute Coronary Syndromes The current issue of the European Heart Journal provides a consensus document from the Mitral Valve Academic Research Consortium, along with a comment by the U.S. Federal Drug Administration, FDA, as well as research articles on different aspects of acute coronary syndromes. Mitral regurgitation is a frequent valve disorder due to primary or organic mitral regurgitation due to degenerative or structural changes and secondary or functional mitral regurgitation due to left ventricular remodeling and or severe left atrial dilation. As outlined by the ESC Working Group on Valvular Heart Disease, Diagnosis and optimal management of mitral regurgitation requires valvular and heart failure specialists, cardiac surgeons, interventional cardiologists, and imaging experts. Specifically, the introduction of transcatheter mitral regurgitation approaches requires expert consensus on pragmatic clinical design and uniform endpoint definitions to evaluate outcome in patients with mitral regurgitation. In a timely consensus document entitled Clinical Trial Design Principles and Endpoint Definitions for Transcatheter Mitral Valve Repair and Replacement, a consensus document from the Mitral Valve Academic Research Consortium, by the Mitral Valve Academic Research Consortium, these issues are thoroughly reviewed. Of note, the consensus statement is complemented by an editorial authored by the FDA, wherein they highlight their perspective which obviously is of utmost importance for this subject, since novel catheter-based interventions are being developed. Rhombus formation is a crucial event in coronary occlusion, as it occurs in ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction, STEMI. Manual thrombectomy has therefore been proposed as a strategy to reduce thrombus burden and improve coronary perfusion during primary percutaneous coronary intervention, PCI, in STEMI. The effectiveness of manual thrombectomy in reducing thrombus burden as well as outcome has been put into question by both large trials, TASTE and TOTAL. In a fast-track paper entitled Culprit Lesion Thrombus Burden After Manual Thrombectomy or PCI Alone in STEMI, the Optical Coherence Tomography Substudy of the Total Thrombectomy versus PCI Alone Trial by Tay Sheth from the McMaster University in Oakville, Canada. The authors in a substudy of the total trial compared the thrombus burden at the culprit lesion using optical coherence tomography, OCT, in 214 patients treated with either thrombectomy or PCI alone. The primary outcome of pre-stent thrombus burden as percent of segment analyzed was 2.36% in the thrombectomy group and 2.88% in the PCI alone group. Absolute pre-stent thrombus volume was also not different, 2.99 mm3 versus 3.74 mm3, as were pre-stent quadrants of thrombus, post-stent atherothrombotic burden, and post-stent anaerothrombotic volume. The authors conclude that, contrary to common beliefs, Manual thrombectomy does not reduce pre-stent thrombus burden at the culprit lesion compared to PCI alone. Both strategies were associated with low thrombus burden at the lesion site after the initial intervention. This paper is accompanied by a well-written editorial by Ronald Binder from the University Hospital Zurich in Switzerland.
Vulnerable plaques are considered the substrate of acute coronary syndromes and an important determinant of clinical outcome. Unfortunately, imaging of vulnerable plaques remains a challenge. Non-contrast T1-weighted imaging, T1-WI, holds promise as a novel non-invasive imaging for vulnerable coronary plaque by visualizing high-intensity plaque. In their paper, Coronary High-Intensity Plaque on T1-weighted Magnetic Resonance Imaging and its Association with Myocardial Injury after Percutaneous Coronary Intervention, Tomoya Hoshi and colleagues from the University of Tsukuba in Japan investigated the association between the presence of high-intensity plaques and the incidence of myocardial injury after PCI. To this end, they imaged 77 patients with stable angina with non-contrast T1WI using a 1.5T magnetic resonance system. They defined high-intensity plaques as a signal intensity of coronary plaque to cardiac muscle ratio of more than or equal to 1.4. High-sensitive cardiac troponin T was measured at baseline and 24 hours after PCI. High-intensity plaques were associated with typical ultrasound attenuation and positive remodeling on intravascular ultrasound. Although baseline high-sensitive cardiac troponin T was similar between groups, their increase after PCI was significantly greater in the high-intensity compared to the non-high-intensity plaque group. A plaque muscle index occurred in 58% in the high-intensity plaque and only 11% in the non-high-intensity plaque group and the cutoff value of coronary plaque to cardiac muscle ratio found to be 1.44 for predicting PMI, sensitivity 78.3%, specificity 81.5%. In the multivariate analysis, coronary plaque to cardiac muscle ratio more than or equal to 1.4 was a significant predictor of PCI-related myocardial injury with an odds ratio of 5.6. The authors conclude that high-intensity plaques on non-contrast T1WI are characterized as vulnerable coronary plaque on IVUS and are associated with a higher incidence of PCI-related myocardial injury. This paper is accompanied by a thoughtful editorial by Thomas Helmut Schindler from the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, USA. Vulnerable plaques are characterized by an activation of distinct inflammatory pathways, particularly in white blood cells such as monocytes and lymphocytes. Robin Tudry and colleagues from Oxford University address this in their paper Acute Myocardial Infarction Activates Distinct Inflammatory and Proliferation Pathways in Circulating Monocytes Prior to Recruitment, Identified Through Conserved Transcriptional Responses in Mice and Humans. They investigated whether the monocyte response following acute myocardial infarction is conserved between humans and mice, and if there are distinct gene expression profiles linked to regulatory functions. 30 patients with acute myocardial infarction and 24 controls with stable coronary disease were enrolled. In parallel, female C57BL-6J mice underwent acute myocardial infarction by coronary ligation. Myocardial injury was quantified by magnetic resonance imaging and echocardiography, respectively. Acute myocardial infarction resulted in a peripheral monocytosis in both species that correlated with the extent of myocardial injury. 
Analysis of the monocyte transcriptome following acute myocardial infarction identified inflammation and mitosis as central processes. The author's findings show that the monocyte transcriptome is conserved between mice and humans following acute myocardial infarction. Patterns of gene expression associated with inflammation and proliferation appear to be switched on prior to their infiltration of injured myocardium, suggesting that the specific targeting of inflammatory and proliferative processes in these immune cells in humans are possible therapeutic strategies. Importantly, they could be effective in the hours after acute myocardial infarction. Aspirin and inhibitors of the platelet P2Y12 receptor are used both for the acute treatment of acute coronary syndromes as well as for secondary prevention thereafter, particularly in patients receiving stents. Ticagrelor, a direct-acting P2Y12 receptor antagonist, is rapidly absorbed and partly metabolized to its major metabolite ARC124910XX after ingestion. Single nucleotide polymorphisms, SNPs, associated with the pharmacokinetics of ticagrelor may affect its plasma levels and in turn the clinical outcomes. In the last manuscript, Effect of Genetic Variations on Ticagrelor, Plasma Levels and Clinical Outcomes, Christoph Varenhorst and colleagues from the Uppsala Clinical Research Center and Department of Medical Sciences in Sweden performed a genome-wide association study, GWAS, in patients treated with ticagrelor in the PLATO trial. A two-stage design was used, with discovery phase involving 1,812 subjects and a replicant cohort with 1,941 patients. SNPs were analyzed against clinical events using Cox regression in 4,990 patients. The SNP RS11368154 in SLCO1B1 was associated with levels of ticagrelor and its metabolite ARC124910XX. This SNP was in linkage disequilibrium with the functional variant RS4149056 that results in decreased OATP1B1 transporter activity. Ticagrelor levels were also associated with two independent SNPs, RS6247-1956 and RS5632-4128, in the CYP3A4 region. Further, the levels of the metabolite ARC124910XX were associated with RS61361928 in UGT2B7. At all loci, the effects were small. None of the identified SNPs that affected ticagrelor pharmacokinetics were associated with the primary composite outcome of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, and stroke, non-CABG-related bleeds, or investigator-reported dyspnea. The authors conclude that in patients with acute coronary syndromes, ticagrelor pharmacokinetics is influenced by three genetic loci. However, the modest genetic effects of ticagrelor plasma levels did not translate into any detectable effect on efficacy or safety during ticagrelor treatment. This reassuring finding for clinical practice is put into perspective in a comprehensive editorial by Adnan Kastrati from the Deutsches Herzzentrum in Munich, Germany. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interests of its readers.